So by no stretch of the imagination am I considered to be an organized person. I am not type A by personality. I, I, I'm, I'm more free-flowing and, and, you know, relational and creative. I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm more jazz than, than opera or orchestra. I, I don't know. That, that just came to me. doesn't work. See, I'm not organized. <laughs> Except when it comes to packing for a trip. When it comes to packing for a trip, there's something in me that just, there is only one right way to do things. And there's a whole system that I have to begin implementing so that I know that wherever I go, I'm going to have whatever I need. And and I tend to also overpack. Do you... Do you ever do this where, you know, you're going on a, a two-day trip, but, then, but you bring enough clothes for two weeks? You know what I'm talking about? Michelle nodding, thank you. Uh, I, I overpack because I, I don't want to be wherever I'm going to be and not have what I need. And so I tend to, to think through, and again, I don't do this in any other context of life, mind you. <laughs> uh, but when it comes to packing... I've got, the, got to get the car all organized and right, like a, you know, a, a real-life version of Tetris, everything in its proper place. Uh, and yet, there have been so many occurrences, and especially uh, more recently, uh, as I have more things to pack, I, you know, I've got a, a, a four-year-old, almost a four-year-old and a one-year-old, and so there's just lots more to think through and bring with you. Uh, and so last summer, for example, I thought I had everything, had the car packed perfectly, all of the, everything that we needed for our, our vacation, and then we get to where we need to go, and we're getting everything out, it's time for bed, and I realized, oh no, I've forgotten the pack and play, the like travel crib, and it's bedtime, and the nearest target is like 35 minutes away. And so I have to, you know, make that drive of shame to get the third pack and play. And, uh, you know, but that, that, that was a, a minor slip up that I may or may not ever live down. But another time, uh, you know, we were, we were somewhere and we needed to be away from home for a you know, a prolonged period of time, and we weren't going to be able to get back into our house for a little while. And, uh, and so my son Beckett was, was one at the time, and so we're hanging out, doing our thing, and, uh, you know, it's time for a diaper change. I go to the diaper bag. I know, rookie mistake. No diapers. And so it's like, okay, well, you know... We got like mm, an hour, it's going to be pushing it, and, uh, but maybe we can make it. So we'll, you know, we'll just go without the diaper, roll the dice, see what happens. And uh, here's what happens on, on the next slide. I'll, I'll let you kind of <laughs> figure out what that is.
I don't have that shirt anymore. <laughs> but the, it, it's experiences like these where I, I, I haven't had what I need, needed most when I needed it the most that have caused me to reflect on that type of experience on a deeper level. And it, it raises a question for me and, and, and for us. Is, do I have what is most essential in life? Do I have what I need most when it matters most? Or am I going to be in a situation, a relationship, a circumstance, where I'm actually not going to have what I need when I need it? And how can we move through life in, in such a way? Because we only really have two choices. You can move through life with either tools and resources that are going to help you navigate the circumstances and complexities and relationships of your life, or you can have baggage that you carry through life. Things that are non-essential, but that you hold on to for whatever reason. We sort of hoard these experiences and, and, and anxieties and, and issues that we have. And so, what I want to do is, is kind of sort through over the next few weeks as we begin this series that we're calling Jesus Essentials. Like, what is most essential to following Jesus in our time and age? What is most essential in life for living a flourishing life, the, the flourishing life that Jesus offers? And do I have what is most essential? Another way of saying this is what we say around here a lot is, is, is our core values, which are over here on the wall. Sorry for you online who can't see that. But it's that Jesus is the center of our faith. Community is the center of our life. And reconciliation is the center of our work. And so what we're going to explore over the next eight weeks is what's in that center. And how does it shape the Jesus and the community and the reconciliation behaviors that we want to live and manifest in the world so that we can live flourishing lives that contribute to the flourishing of the world. So what's most essential? And we have to begin first and foremost with the most central aspect of all of this where everything else gets wonky. The first thing that we need to understand first and foremost is that God is love. This is the most vital and essential ingredient for knowing Jesus and following Jesus and living a flourishing life. This understanding of who God is essentially, in God's essence and character and being, who God is all the way through, and who God always has been as made known in and through Jesus, is love. Now, as soon as we say this, we have to kind of clear away some of the things that get in the way of our really laying hold of this claim, especially if you're not a follower of Jesus, or perhaps you've, you've grown up in the church. There, there are things that get in the way of us really saying yes and amen to this. And the first thing that gets in the way is Christians and Christian communities. The way that Jesus people and Jesus communities have 
embodied what this means or misunderstood or misappropriated or misapplied this in our time, whether it has to do with moral issues or racial issues or whatever, economic, all of these things get in the way of us saying, yes, God is love. But not only in our time, but throughout time. Christians have failed in as many ways as Christians have embodied this, Christians have fumbled the ball of living, loving lives in the world. We have to look no further than things like the Crusades to really get clear, like, oh, yeah, we haven't been great at this. But then we have also just our personal experiences of grief, of pain, of loss, of broken relationship that cause us to, at some level in our core, uh, be hesitant to really trust that God is love. But also at the same time as we have these issues over here, we, we also need to get clear on what, we're, what type of love we're talking about. Because not all loves are created equally. In the English language, we really only have one word for love, and we use it in a variety of ways. For example, I can say, I love pizza, and I love my wife and children. And you better believe that those two things do not mean the same thing. Trust me, I've had to find out the hard way. (laughs) These are two different applications of of what we mean by love. And in the Greek language, the language that the New Testament was written in, there are four different words for love. And the first word is storge, and it means affection, like fond feelings of of kindness and goodness, like how you you feel about a a sunrise or something, or how you feel towards somebody who, who is like you in some way. You feel just fondness and affection. And then there's phileo, uh, which is kind of kinship or, or familial love, love that you have for uh, your fellow country person or, or for somebody in your family or somebody who you uh, are just good friends with. You have this type of familial love. And then there's eros, uh, and this is where in English we get, we get the word erotic, and it's, it's a, the word means desire. It's this, this, this passionate longing being drawn into something uh, that, that you need. I, I, I desire pizza, you know what I mean? Like, I just, I want it. It's so delightful and tasty and good. Uh, but, I, I, uh, but there's a, a higher form of love. A more foundational form of love. This, this type of love that the first Christians knew and experienced and were trying to invite people into, which was agape love. This love that is other-oriented, that is self-sacrificial, that creates communities of belonging from among different people with different backgrounds, and that embraces even its enemies. This is the highest and most foundational form of love that the first Christians were specifically trying to 
invite people into. This is what it means to say that God is love. And, and we're going to look now at one of these first Christian communities and how they attempted to understand and apply what it means that God is love. And this, what we're going to look at is the letter known as 1 John. And it's written by one of Jesus' closest followers. In fact, he, he, his name is John, but he called himself the beloved disciple. The disciple whom Jesus agaped. The beloved one. And he didn't mean, I'm beloved, therefore you're not. He meant it as a type for the whole. By calling himself the beloved one, he, he also means to say, like, you are too. We're all the beloved ones, the ones whom Jesus loves, the ones whom Jesus agapes. And he writes this letter to a, a group of house churches in a, a city called Ephesus. And these churches, these communities, are beginning to be fractured. There, there, there's actually, by the time that John uh, writes this, or communicates to these communities, there, there's actually been a church split over theological issues. There's been a theological disagreement that has, has led uh, these communities to, to split. And so he's writing to, to try and help heal and mend and, and correct these communities. And so we're going to look at 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. And this is where the claim, the phrase, God is love, originates. It's from John dealing with this community. And he begins by saying, Beloved, let us love one another. In the midst of the divisions and fracturings and, and, and split relationships, he says, Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. The source and origin and beginning of love is from within God's self that moves out into the world. The only reason there is love in the world is because of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God, but whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. Now what John is communicating into here by, by beginning in this place from where we've picked up in, in the letter, and, and it's, it, this letter is, is less like a reasoned uh, argument, although it's full of reason. It's not this sequential logic is what I'm trying to say. It's more like beat poetry in sermon form. That if you read this letter, it just sort of moves around like, like jazz. And, and, and there, there are these core uh, themes that just get replayed over and over again. And, and, and now he's kind of circling around on this idea of God being love. Because he's trying, he's emphasizing this point because the nature of the conflict that has led to this split is over the nature and essence of Jesus. Now, this is going to seem like a non, an inconsequential sort of point, but go with me and, and you'll see that it, it matters a lot. So, first, 
we need to understand that what John is writing into, the, the source of this conflict, is that there's a group of people who are saying that Jesus was divine in, in his essence and who he was, but not actually human. Jesus, as he moved and lived and taught, was a, a, a God who had come into the earth, but was fully divine and not at all human, and came to sort of deposit information and rightness and teaching and to, to, to show the way. This is, it's all divine, but not at all human. And on the other hand, there's a group of people who would claim to say, actually, no, you got it backwards. Jesus was human, but not at all divine. He, what he was saying was, was this is the fullness of, of human expression offered up to God. But in no way was Jesus, Jesus may have appeared to be like God in, in some way, because, you know, these miracles and healings and, and things like that, but Jesus wasn't actually in any way divine. And, and what, this, what this means, kind of fast forward into, into the present moment, th these are common uh, missteps and mistakes that we make in understanding what it means to be a, a follower of Jesus or to understand what it means to know who Jesus is. On, on the one hand, we might emphasize that all that matters is right thinking or right belief. That thinking the right things, believing the right things in the right ways is ultimately what matters. So we just need to believe in, in, in our minds that God is love. As long as we have that right belief, that's what matters most. But the challenge is when we think it all depends on right thinking, right belief, the, the, the trap is oftentimes when, when we move in this way, we often neglect right living and right relating to other people because if, if we're in this place of thinking all that matters is our right belief, then we will distance and not be in, in the loving type of community that God calls us to be in with people who don't think like us or who don't believe in the same ways as us. And therefore, we, we, we sort of forfeit the love, the fullness of the love that is given to us. But on the other hand, that we might fall into the trap of, of, of thinking that all that matters is loving people. And we don't really need right ideas about God, or maybe God, ideas about God might be getting in the way of us actually loving people. And so we move over in this direction, and we think all that matters is loving people. But the, what, the misstep in this approach is that we don't have a clearly defined way of understanding the type and the nature of love that we are meant to offer other people, which is, in fact, related fully and completely to who God is. And so these are, are the two traps that, that, that this community has fallen into that John is speaking into and trying to clarify and correct. And, and, and to put it another way, the uh, spiritual writer Frederick Bauerschmidt puts it like this. He says, uh, that to claim to love God without engaging in the difficult task of loving those whom I encounter in my everyday life is to engage in a deadly deceptive fantasy. I am lying to others and to myself. If I claim to love God and don't love 
the people whom God loves, then I'm, I'm deceiving myself. And, and John is writing to wake us up from that fantasy, that we can love God and there are some people we don't have to love. But how do we know this? How do, we, how, do, how, do we, how do we know how to do this? How do we see this? What do we do with it? That's where John continues. He says that God's love was revealed among us. You know, the love of God is not something that we make up. The love of God is not something that our minds can logically find its way to. It's revealed. It comes from beyond and makes its, it, it just shows up in the form of Jesus. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through Jesus. In this is love. Not that we loved God. And John specifically is clarifying here. God did not send Jesus into the world because we loved God. And and God sends Jesus to the people who love God. No. None of us loved God rightly. And in this way, God enters into the world in Jesus and loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. What John is saying, that our misunderstandings of who God is result in our diminished capacity to love others. Distorted ideas about who God is and what God has come to do result in a diminished capacity to love others. And so John clarifies that by saying, look at who Jesus is. Do you want to know what, what love is like? Look at Jesus. We know that God is love by looking at Jesus. When we look at Jesus' life, his teachings, his miracles, his death, and his resurrection, but ultimately when we look at Jesus on the cross, all of the distorted ideas that we have about God come into clear focus, and we see what is most essential about the nature of God's love, which is in the face of all of our distortions about God that would lead us to say, we would prefer you dead, like the younger brother in Jesus' parable of the prodigals. We would prefer you dead. That is what is happening with Jesus on the cross. We would, t- we would like your stuff, but not relationship with you. It's in that that we see the fullness of what love is, which will take on even the pain and rejection of humanity and our distorted images of who God is and say, look at how much I love you. And in this way, Jesus reconciles us to God by clarifying our picture of who God is, that in God's nature and essence, fully and completely is love. And therefore, we can trust and be in relationship with and follow Jesus because God is love. There is, in God, there is no unchristlikeness at all. When we see Jesus, we see who God has always been and always will be. And so we can begin to trust that that's the type of love that we are meant to offer to others in the world. And so it, 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 it put it in biblical language, when we see Jesus on the cross, it reconciles us to God by clarifying our distorted images of God 
to remove the temptations to idolatry that we find ourselves in because when we have a distorted view of God, we tend to put ourselves in or others in the place of God. But when we get that out of the way, we can be in right relationship with God so that we can begin to be in right relationship with others. Because we cannot fully love and completely love according to this definition, which is Jesus on the cross. That is the fullest expression of love. That is the type of love you were made to be able to offer to the world. That is love. And so we know that God is love by looking at Jesus. And then he continues, Beloved, since God loved us so much in this way, since God loved us like this, like Jesus dying on the cross, so we ought to love one another in this way, is what John is saying and implying. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So not only do we know that God is love by looking at Jesus, but in looking at Jesus, we know, we know how and who to love by looking to Jesus. We know how and who to love by looking at Jesus on the cross. The theologian C.S. Lewis puts it this way, divine gift love, meaning agape, in humans enables us to love what is not naturally lovable. Lepers, criminals, enemies, morons, <laughs> the sulky, the superior, and the sneering. The love of God on display and in reality through Jesus on the cross empowers us to love what is naturally unlovable in the world and also in ourselves. And this empowers us, my friends. We know that God is love. We know who and how to love in a Jesus cruciform, a cro uh, 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 the way of Jesus on the cross way, but then we begin to show the world that God is love by looking like Jesus, by loving people in this way. And this is what, with, without any shadow of a doubt, began to set the first followers of Jesus apart in the first century is that people began living and looking like Jesus in ways that began to upend the cultural values of the time in the Greco-Roman world. That there were people who were in a full category of unlovableness. We don't, and it wasn't loving or kind or merciful to love those people. In, in that cultural context, there was nothing that compelled you. It was even the heights of maturity to say, these people are unlovable. That's just how the world is. And so to move away from them is actually a mature response. And we look at that and we're like, that's crazy. And it's crazy in our minds because the first followers of Jesus said, what? That's crazy. And they moved over here because we have seen how love looks and acts and who, where love directs us. And the, the historian of the first century, Teresa Morgan, she, she says, this is, the love for the unlovable is the thing that set Christians apart from everyone and everything else. She writes this, Christians are taught that God loves them absolutely. <laughs> Have you been taught that 
Have you been taught that God loves you absolutely? I don't know if all of us have. But it's true. God loves you absolutely to your essence. Every bit and molecule of you God loves. And on that basis, you can trust God. The reason we don't trust God is because we don't trust that God actually loves us. If they can trust God, they can love God, and because Christians are given such an abundance of love, they can afford to love one another with enormous, unreserved generosity. And that is a completely different model of relations with your fellow human beings and how your relationship with God affects your relationship with human beings from anything in ancient religious thinking in general. It is certainly completely different from anything that, it, that is in popular moral consciousness in the first century. And with that idea of love goes care for the vulnerable. This is a world with no social safety nets. But Christians create social safety nets. There's one account of a church in the second century that had two formal pastors and that cared for over 1,700 widows and orphans, which no one in the ancient world cared for. It's mind-boggling. They are people who are notorious for looking after the widows, the poor, the orphans, the people who in most of society are just slung out on the street. And so when we get clear on the love of God that is revealed to us in Jesus, which shows the depths of love that God has for you and for the world, it absolutely changes and reconfigures and reorganizes how we live towards other people in the world. And the measurement becomes, does our love for others look like Jesus' love for us on the cross? Is that how we're living? Is that how we're loving? And we're always invited back by grace and by the mercy of God to recenter our lives on the cross because we will always and inevitably fail to love like Jesus on the cross, but we're always called back. We are always drawn nearer and nearer to Jesus who is at the center of our lives so that we can love people like Jesus loves us. And so we ask the question in terms of what, what does this mean for us? How do we live this? How do we love people like Jesus loves us? And I, the way that I, I, I like to think about this is in the form of this question, what does love require of me? In this relationship, in this circumstance, in this situation, what is it that the agape love of Jesus is requiring of me? What is it compelling me to do? I want you to think about your life right now. I want you to think about your relationships. I want you to think about your, your work context or whatever situation you find yourself in that you're struggling with, that things are unclear or messy or complicated. And I want you to ask yourself this question. What is love requiring of me right now?
in this moment. And in this moment, I want you to make a commitment to doing whatever has come to your mind. So pull out your phone and shoot a text. Or schedule a time to, 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 to make some time. Or maybe, maybe it looks like being interested this afternoon in something that your kids or your grandkids are interested in that you could care less about. What does love require of you? And maybe for some of us, this looks like finally and ultimately and completely trusting that God loves us completely and taking that next step in following Jesus by being baptized. And that opportunity is coming up and there's more information in, in, in the bulletins and in the lobby about how you can take that next step for you. But also, maybe for others of us, it looks like signing up and participating in and joining in the faith banquet that's coming up on May 4th to learn the ways in which this community has, has because of the love of Jesus, become a social safety net for people in this neighborhood and in this city. And how can we support that? That's another next step. What does love require of you? And there's a story, I'll end with this, the story of um, John the Beloved, told by one of uh, the, the people that he mentored, who became a, a church father, a, a prominent figure in the early church named Jerome. And he tells a story that at the end of John's life, John is the only one of Jesus' original 12 disciples who lived, uh, who died of natural causes. Everyone else was, was martyred, was killed. John lived to an old age, and so there's a story that Jerome tells that uh, in his, as he neared death, he, his, his uh, men, mentees would, would carry him into the congregation in order to teach. And at the end, he only and always said one thing, Beloved, Love one another. And quite understandably, some of the people in the congregation got frustrated with this. They're like, what else? Why do you always say the same thing, they asked him. And in a clear voice, he responded, because this is the Lord's command. And if only this is done, it will be enough. May it be so among us. Amen.